This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Now, um, speaking of the Temple Mount, the Temple Mount is where this great service took place. And this service is a, it's a international style, a kind of a universal thing. What does that mean? It's a universal thing. It, um, there's offerings, I think, no matter what culture you go to, unless it's a atheist, Western, nihilistic culture, there's offerings. Although even the Western atheist nihilist still has offerings, you understand? Because let's say they want to go to gym, but their their spouse says, you know, can you please come home? <laughs> that's a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is that there should be a better relationship with someone. And that's all we're doing with God. The same thing is we're letting go. We're going to release something. We're going to let go of something. It might be our money. It might be an animal if you're a farmer. It might be uh, uh, spices that you've grown for incense offerings. But you understand that every decision you make is a sacrificial moment. Because a decision, it comes from the word decide. The word decide means to eliminate, like homicide, suicide, right? Uh, genocide means to eliminate. So every decision you make, there's certain things you're letting go of there. There's things you're eliminating in that process of elimination to make that decision. That's your sacrifice. And in that sacrifice is the power of what you did. Meaning things are only powerful in as much as you made a sacrifice. Uh, one example that I like to give, which is, brings back the surfing years, is... Let me just make a bracha on this. Brings back the surfing years. Was, uh, even though I, I'm still surfing and hopefully surfing this week. If anyone wants to join me, by the way, to surf, please God, we're going to have some waves this week. Paddle out. Maybe we'll bring Yosef. We'll do a little shots on the beach. Yeah. So, anyway, the I think that should be at eye level. No offense. But you think? Oh, did you learn to shoot from below? What do you mean from below? That thing's about equal to my belly button right now. I know you have to tilt it up, but I'm not sure that's the right. Well, I'll raise stay. it up on the tripod. What do you think? I'm staying out of it from now on. I'm a backseat driver. I know nothing about photography, but nothing. Oh yeah, someone told me it should be it should be head high. Someone told me it should be head high. But. Reminds me of the sacrifice of my entire life in Israel. That the year I came here with zero intention of staying here, like I really had no reason to stay here in my mind or heart. I I was only coming to Israel because I got a free ticket, and I needed to get to my tour. I was going to do. I was surfing. I was going to surf France, Spain, Portugal, which I'd done the previous year with the pro tour. And then I was going to surf from Portugal. I was going to cross over to Morocco, which is still a major bucket list. Please God, I'll hit Morocco this year. By the way, any Moroccans <laughs> listening might want to join me on the Morocco trip. But I'm doing a surf trip in Morocco. I do executive travel. Um, I have an executive travel company, actually. And I travel with people and show them a really intense time in exotic locations. And while they're all sleeping off the previous night's uh, indulgences... I wake up at sunrise and surf for two hours. So I generally do these either with excellent mountain biking or excellent surf surfing. And Morocco is an excellent surfing location. It may actually have good mountain biking. Come to think of that, I didn't even think about that. Anyway, um, anyways, I was going to do France, Spain, Portugal, Morocco, South Africa, Australia, and then uh, and then swing on back towards you know South. I do Southeast Asia and stuff, and then come back back to California. It was a major trip planned, and it was going to be for two years. And um, due to my father's bankruptcy, because I was a trust baby, Rastafarian, which is called a trustafarian, due to my father's bankruptcy, I, I flew... Uh, I, he didn't have money to send me on my graduation trip to your excursion. And so I got a free ticket to Israel. Now... Just to give a little background, that <coughs> five-year expanse between when I started university and I finished took five years because I took every class pass, no pass, and uh, 
and so I, I would just no pass two and then pass one. And I mean, sometimes I passed three, sometimes I passed two, but I only took classes that had multiple guess exams. I know you call them multiple choice, but we call them multiple guess, and I call them multiple guess. And the and when you have a Jewish IQ, and that's not a racist comment, you just go online and find out the IQ of Jews. When you have a Jewish IQ, the chance of passing on a multiple guess exam is extremely high. And so that's basically, I didn't pass them all. I had plenty of no passes, believe me. And in some of this stuff, was like, I didn't even know what they were talking about. But long story short, after those five years is, oh, not a long story short, those five years were spent in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is a university campus that's the UCSB, You Can Study Buzz, is the highest population west of the, highest concentration population west of the Mississippi. And everyone's between the ages of 18 and 22. Can you imagine what's going on over there? Yeah, it was, it was crazy. The, uh, a magazine, I'll leave nameless, named it number one party school for close to 20 years. And here, 30 years later, is, is, uh, it's number six still. And which is just, it really is out there. And, and the, um, anyway, but the reason I was there was because it has the, this actual population in Santa Barbara where the campus is and all the housing is, is surrounded on all sides by surf spots. And so it's just the ultimate surface destination unless you have a drought. If California goes into drought, then it becomes like its name, pacified, Pacific. It becomes like a lake. All five years I was there, it was like a lake. So anywhere I surfed, I either had to drive hours or I had to uh, fly for those five years. I come to Jerusalem on this trip here that seems to still be going on now, 28 years later, but I came on this trip that never ended. And guess what? El Nino, the climate system called El Nino, is a shift in the... It happens, has happened twice every seven years. You never know when, but twice every seven years is the pattern. And that was the El Nino year. El Nino year means there's a jet, there's a jet stream shift that's called El Nino. El Nino is the name of, of, of JC, actually. Um, and uh, he's called the little one. And uh, so they call it El Nino. I kind of like that, too, because when Jews think about JC, we, oh, it's hard for us not to think about all the hell they put us through, Christians put us through hell. And, and, the, uh, and that's the same thing that happens on the El Nino year is there's flooding and landslides and, and every kind of disaster happens during the El Nino year. Except surfers love it because the waves are huge. And the whole jet stream shifts south, so the waves that the Northern Californians usually get to enjoy, suddenly the Southern Californians get to enjoy. And it's, we're getting really big waves. So of course, the year I come to Israel, landlocked in Jerusalem, in Yeshiva, is the El Nino year. That was a really long story for me explaining that things are only as powerful as what you sacrifice. And so, for me to live five years in the ultimate venue for an El Nino year, and then move to Israel on the El Nino year, where the surf spots for five years I was waiting to come on are now blasting with waves every single day for the entire winter. And I was sitting here, it was the coldest winter. Whenever there's El Nino, Israel gets like frozen winters. And we, we had three weeks of snow at one point on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and this is back when Asia Torah wasn't uh, very uh, uh, financially stable at the time. So we had rationed heat. You could have an hour when you go to bed at night. I uh, know, an hour, two hours at night at bedtime, and an hour in the morning for wake up. It was on a time where you couldn't shift. And, the, uh, and so we're, we're, we're all in mummy bags. And I'm thinking about Southern California's waves. And I wake up every morning, all I kept out of my sleeping bag was my mouth and my nose. And every morning I'd wake up and open up the, you know, the zip, you know, that little thing. And, and then I'd just see steam rising up out of the sleeping bag into the ice cold air. And I would always say to myself, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> The power of that decision, though, was the sacrifice. 
the power of that decision to learn Torah, my sacrifice to God was was this was this you know lifestyle and sport that I dedicated everything to, like full commitment to I dedicated. And this comes in a in a sentence that we say every day, three times a day, is is uh that you should love God with all your all your heart and all your soul. But the third one is all your very and it's called Meodecha that doesn't translate well, all your very. What is your very? Your very is what you very much would not like to give up for God. So there's certain things that you just don't want to give up. You probably already know a few of them. You know, a couple of things you just don't want to give up. That's your very. Anything you very much... It's either stuff you don't want to give up that you're already doing that you shouldn't be doing, or it's stuff that you, um, that you need to um, start doing, but it just cramps your style. You know, like, for example, a girl from race secular in, in Florida... You know, where where clothing in Florida, you can go to a clothing store in Florida, in Miami, that doesn't have enough fabric in the entire store to clothe one woman's body once. And if you're raised that way, and then discover Judaism and realize that you're, you're actually, your soul is part of God and your body is the temple, and just like a Torah scroll goes on, it's first got a belt, you know, to hold it together, obviously, but it's first got a belt. And then it's got a jacket, and then it's got a it's got a usually a breastplate on it, and a crown, and and then it's put in a safe, which has also usually beautiful wooden doors, and then you know because you got to keep the doors in a fireproof safe inside inside the ark, and and the ark is the safe, and then it's but a real combo safe because you got to open it on Shabbos, and then it's got wooden doors, some kind of beautiful doors usually. And then it's got a curtain. And, you know, but, but you're a girl from Miami. So for that girl from Miami to treat herself like a Torah might be very much meodecha, like with all my very, because this is very hard for me to do. And I suggest if a girl decides she's going to come to learn Torah in Israel and she's from Miami, that she comes in December it'll make it easier now that we're just going to call a class by the way that was a class of sacrifice let me see if I want to say something else about sacrifice okay I don't so when you came to Jerusalem, you came to the temple. And the temple service is something that's universal. It has offerings, and it, we mentioned offerings, and it has um, music. And you'll notice no matter where you go universally in this world, where people do their service, there's usually music. And, um, and then it also has uh, smells, incense, and there's... And there's uh, crystals like precious stones involved. Crystal, you know, the crystals are quartz crystals and stuff like that. So the precious stones, yeah. And um, uh, you have people who are in a state of surrender, which is all mystical traditions come only with a state of surrender. Do you know why that is? That you, for you to achieve a mystical state, you have to have surrender, or is it just blatantly obvious? What do you think? Should I explain it? Why you need surrender? Well, it could be there's a couple people in the room who would like to have a mystical experience. And so maybe I should explain why surrender is kind of a prerequisite. So, the... Um, what's the opposite of surrender? The opposite of surrender is, is for, to hold on, to be poised and postured. But, most, but even to go more specifically, is the opposite of surrendered is, is to... Um, is to have, to still be attached to the upkeep of your own self-image. To be attached to the upkeep of your own self-image. When you surrender your upkeep of your own self-image, when you let yourself be nobody, but really nobody, 
you've now laid the groundwork. There's other groundwork also. But when you have allowed yourself, the self-image to disappear and let yourself be nobody, now there's a chance for a mystical moment, to have a mystical experience. So what is it? Why let go of the self-image? I mean, your society's been telling you to have a self-image, whether it's an observant society where everything's about self-image or it's the secular society where it's, everything's about self-image. They're, they're both... A, they're, they're, that's a lie. Self-image is a lie. What is, it, what is the word image short for? Imagination. Imagination. So what's a self-image? An imaginary self. It's an imaginary self. Well, if I have an imaginary self that I'm going to defend... By the way, the word image also means pictures, like Google Images, like an image. Like a, an image. Tor also used the word image, like a graven image. Don't make graven images. It means a picture of oneself, a sculpture. Is an image. So what's a self-image then? It's a self-picture. I don't want to go too deep right now, but if you think about this, when did you when did you say cheese for your self-image? Well, it's easy to answer that question. If you had 500 good days, but on day 301, something really nasty happened. Let's say you're eight years old and 500 great days, which of course become a wash, and day 301, some kind of life shock, some kind of embarrassment, a humiliation, something traumatic, something scary happens on day 301. Which day is going to be the day you said cheese? Day 301. That'll be the day you said cheese. And something happened. You let that mean something about you. That became your own little nasty secret about how lame you are. And, and ever since then, you've been surviving that self-image. So, so for something to, for your, you have a need for everything to play into the narrative of your life. You understand? You, you need everything to somehow fit in the file cabinets of your self-image. Which means that you are, that makes you automatically not a vessel for the mystical experience because, because you're, there is no experience but just an experience of yourself when you're into self-image. You understand? If you're filtering everything based on your own self-image, that means your only experience is an experience of self. So the things you think you're experiencing are really not. It's just stuff filtered through self. It's like when I'm meeting girls, when I'm meeting guys for my girls, meaning I'm meeting potential men to marry my daughters I've got myself out I'm now wearing my daughter's eyes and heart and mind and soul and and I mean I've raised her all these years I've, I've like you know I've really I've got I've got it you know I've been watching her since she was born and so I just put on her eyes and I put on her soul and I, and, and then I meet the guy and I filter this guy through her eyes and see what she thinks. That's how I meet them. And by the way, I'm not the final decision. I'm only the final decision that they can meet. But it certainly screens out anything that would not be good for her so that she can meet someone who's already someone I've filtered out that way. But they, in other words, but we ourselves are filtering everything through this image and to have a mystical experience means that you gotta let go of this image which is really a false image and it's uh, and it's also I think a statue is a better terminology for the word image because the self image is locked in, it's in, you know it's stone it seems unchangeable unmovable and so when we drop that self image we are we are, there's a, well, we're free. And if there's a mystical experience, experience to be had, now we've laid the groundwork for that to take place. Is that clear? Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of work, though, to get to a mystical experience. This is just the prerequisite, is the surrender to get you to, get you to, that, to that experience. You have to surrender yourself. This is why Moses was chosen for... Uh, for Mount Sinai to be the one to receive the Torah 
Moses was chosen because he had the lowest of all self. He had like no self-image, Moses. No self-image. Because it wasn't just that God needed someone with no self-image because it's humble. He needs someone with no self-image so he doesn't die. Because something can pop your self-image badly. And you can be, you know, damaged in the, in the experience. Understand? Like, the, 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 a, a mystical experience can be a scary thing if you haven't first laid the groundwork for achieving it. And it can be so self... Um, self-image defeating, let's call it self-defeating, self-image defeating, that it can be, it could even be a damaging experience. And so Moses certainly getting the Torah through prophecy was, you know, anyone else would have been in grave danger. There was actually a better choice than Moses for this job. He was the leader of the Jews at the time, who, I think by no coincidence, was Moses' brother. But Moses had a brother who was already the leader of, the, of Israel. He was the head rabbi of the whole country, whole uh, nation. We didn't have a country yet. And uh, he was leading. He would have been the right guy, except except he wouldn't have been able to handle the prophetic experience that Moses was able to handle. So even though his brother was the obvious choice as far as leaders go, um, he couldn't have gotten the Torah. Now, an interesting question, though, and it kind of brings up church and state, is... Um, is why why is why didn't God choose a priest to handle religion and Aaron to handle state Aaron's a better leader let him lead and let Moses get the Torah the answer is is that the person who brings down the civil law has to be the person who gets the Torah you understand they're together there's no separation in church and state they're not supposed to be separated. Now, I have no idea what, how bad world religions would be for state, but probably pretty bad if we see most democracies want them separated. But Judaism, God forbid, never separate church and state. They're, they're one, and they're bonded eternally. And if you're wondering why, anyone wondering why they're bonded eternally, is that interesting to anybody? The reason they're bonded eternally is because, is because the... <laughs> Because the only reason you could have a moral voice would be because there's a God. Well, what is state? State is how do you organize a population of people and keep them from killing each other? The answer is you have to create civil law. Well, civil law then is going to be what's called good, and breaking that civil law is what's called bad. Well, where does good and evil come from? Where does good and bad come from? The answer is, well, if there's no God, there is no such thing as good and evil. And I can understand why they would want a separation from the religions. You know, keep the religions out of it. Let's just create law. And we'll ignore the fact that the only reason you know good and evil is because of God. Because there's a God, and therefore there's got to be something good, and there's got to be something evil. But, you know, like, if you don't believe in that, so then you, in the end, your society's going eat it, to eat itself alive. And then, so, you have to create civil law. You just keep religion away from it. But Judaism understands that the only reason we have the concept of good and evil is only because there's God. That's the only reason we have good and evil. Where else would you get it? It can only come from a God that you have good and evil. Again, the atheists, you know, Sam Harris would say, you know, something like after billions of years of, of people doing things that were against the betterment of society, after billions of years, I don't know how many years is that, hundreds of thousands or a million years or millions of years of human beings doing things that weren't for the betterment, they got, they got somehow, uh, uh, what is it called, they selected out. It, was, it selected itself. And we're just genetically selected to do things that are positive for society. Just like totally cuckoo. That's a cuckoo. Oh, do they use the word cuckoo in the rest of the world? In Israel, cuckoo means crazy. Moving a ponytail. It's a ponytail. All sorts of ponytail. Israel's a big on the word cuckoo. 
So, there's, but that's that's just totally cuckoo. Like, I mean, that's just the the, the opposite discussion is is that only with God is there good and evil. That's it. If you have a God, so then yeah, there's we've been created. We've been created. There must be a purpose. Well, I know I have a moral voice inside my heart, and so it must be that I'm supposed to have this tug of war between good and evil inside of me, and and choose good. And that that that's the way we were created. We were created for that. It's not that this is some kind of Darwinian selection that was made over the years. <laughs> that our predicament of free will is is somehow we were we selected we, we're like the survival of the fittest was the ones who think doing good we're the ones who lasted because it's very interesting because it's the exact opposite of what would select what would actually select would be the might makes right would do the selection just would look at the animal kingdom it's not the the one that does the most good wins it's the one that's usually the most vicious would do the winning and Hitler was a social Darwinist and he believed the Jews because of all the mitzvahs in the Torah, he was quite an expert in it. As far as you know, someone who never went to yeshiva would be called an expert, but he understood that a lot of Judaism is about benevolence, and being good, and, and sacrificing yourself for the for the whole, and to recognize that every single human being has a soul, and every single human being who has that soul, therefore, is part of God and part of the plan. Whereas he would say that. That not killing the weak would be, would be a, a disadvantage for what, as a social Darwinist, would believe is to create a master race. And, and so Judaism says, no, you should be anti-Darwinian and sacrifice yourself, and sacrifice your family. And do your best to make sure that... that People are taken care of in the world, and uh, and to the betterment of society. Now, maybe Harris would say, "Yeah, I think that's not going to make any sense." But such anti-Darwinian thinking of taking care of others besides your own is has over millions of years has somehow kept that that insane voice in your head that. And so, you know, right now, it's my daughter's birth, 18th birthday party. And the entire family and extended family are all at the party, and I missed the party to come to. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was her party. And when they asked me at age if I would be teaching the day after my daughter's wedding, when I only got to bed at 5 a.m., maybe I want to take a day off, not to mention my daughter's birthday party. And the answer is that, that no, I'll teach today. I'll make sure people hear a class today from me, and and I'll get it. I'll be at the beginning of the party. I'll come for the end of the party, but I won't be at the main part of the party. And in my lack of quantity, I make up for in quality with each of my children, because there's not a ton of quantity. And that I'm here to make a difference in the world. And I make the difference for my children through, in, you know, a very high quality interaction, and uh, and then I come out to have high quality interaction with with people who are hearing these messages. Because uh, let's just take uh, what's your name? Yeah. Daniel. If I said anything that that Daniel has a better life, so that means that. Who you that, that you are now in a dating pool of a woman who who would be interested in a guy who's going for a better life, and the two of you with those goals in mind would raise children with that kind of lifestyle, better life lifestyle, and and then there's a whole generation now coming out of you. My kids, they're doing. Thank God, they're doing really well, and I'd like your kids to be doing. But the only way that's going to happen is you get your act together. You've got to get your act together so you can get into a dating pool that you can now donate some DNA such that your children will grow up in a, in a household that will not lean too heavily on the system. 
please God, not leaning on that legal system. Your kids should not lean on that, and they, your kids should not lean up too much on the welfare system. Rather, your kids should be creating more bounty in the world. And, and if they really keep seeking the good, well, eventually you seek the good of others. And if we have enough people touched, creating a generation of people seeking the good of others, so then after a while, all those others are doing good too. And so, rather than eating cake right now, I'd rather be with you right now. See if we can create a better world as a result. That's why I'm missing my daughters. And that's a big sacrifice. I offer that sacrifice to bring you closer, to bring us all closer. in Manhattan that are like these trippy stores you know those trippy stores in like uh, in the Lower East Side where there's like you can like smell incense and you hear like meditation music coming out and it's like they usually have like cactus in front I'm not sure why and uh, and the store is like way overcrowded with tchotchkes and stuff and and you go inside those stores and there's like every kind of incense and there's sage smudge sticks and there's there's a lot of stones and crystals and precious, you know, precious stones in there. And you guys probably don't go in those shops, although those are my favorite shops to go into. But when when, when you think about it, it feels like it's uh, pagan. Feels a little bit pagan over there. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't feel Jewish. It feels pagan. And because when we think of Judaism, we just think of this this sanitary synagogue situation. A bookstore. A bookstore. A Judaica store. A delicatessen. Sushi. Sushi, if you're from New York, you're on the East Coast. The, um, but if it was service, it would be the, you know, this sanitary prayer going on in some synagogue somewhere. But the in the temple... What took place in the t- in the, on that Temple Mount was was animal sacrifice, vegetation sacrifice, mineral sacrifice. There was uh, incense wafting in the air that was way more intense than any incense that's found in those stores. A very very specific combination of 11, 11 different spices that that really would blow your mind and um, and we take it seriously to the point where to create that combination of those spices and mix them together is the death penalty if it was done not for the temple I mean, if you just made it like hey let's make it like you're just in your kitchen with all the spices and you just okay we need this much of that and that much of this and we get it all measured out and grind it all up and get the whole thing powdered and it's the death penalty for such a thing or you did it for the right reasons you did it for the temple and you just happen to wind up with a little vial of it and you take it off the temple mount because you feel like meditating and you burn some it's the death penalty. So, I promise you, those pagan cultures there, there's no death penalty when it comes to incense. Just, there's no death penalties. They don't take their incense as seriously as we do. Maybe they take their crystals more seriously than we do. What do you think? The high priest of Israel, the Kohen, he wore a breastplate with 12 precious stones, 12 crystal stones on his breastplate. And when there was a question of national importance, he would ask the breastplate, and the breastplate would actually answer. I don't know how it answered. Did it light up? Did it speak? It would light up? 
Oak is all the names in there? If you go through all the names of tribes, is every letter accounted for? No, but there's other letters that look, like, there's like also Shifty Sherlock in it. Oh. Uh, so so every letter's there. And it's like Aramis and Yaakov. Aramis and Yaakov's on there too. I thought there were 12 stones, or they're written into some no, of the stones. No, they're like, it's like Avraham Yitzchak Yaakov Shiftei Yishim. Different stones? Yeah, it's like broken up. But there were 12 stones. Yeah, and then on every stone it said the name and then... Like the name of the tribe. And then a bit of Aramis and Yaakov Shiftei Oh, wow. It had, I didn't know that. How do you know that? It was in Talmud? I read it somewhere. So, anyway, but it would spell out messages. Yeah, like the keyboard of the uh, telephone, they have the letters will write, and the, only the Kohen uh, Gadol can understand what the letters will together, will, uh, what's the meaning. What's being said. Yeah. Uh, he had the ability to interpret it. Yeah. That's so interesting, yeah. and the um, but back to the pagans. They're, they're really into crystals. Like when you go in those shops, you see some amazing crystals in there. And any new age shop always has that giant amethyst, you know, like the ten thousand dollar amethyst thing, you know, this tall, which is like my biggest dream. You know, some someday someone's going to donate one of those to me. Yeah, it's going to be some. You know, someone watching this video is going to say. I'm so not into these stones, and I had a lot of extra money around. I wound up dumping five grand on this amethyst. I'm donating it to Rabbi Glazer's meditation room. I have a special meditation room, but I've dreamt forever. I would never spend that kind of money on one of those huge amethysts. You know what I'm talking about? You'll see them in like, you know, like King Spa, the Korean Spa. You know, in the Queens, you know, the, the, it's a big spa, you know, it's a Korean spa. They're going to dump some money on such a thing, you know. What? What does that stone do? Amethyst? Yeah. You just Google it, it'll be really similar. Anyone anyway, got there Googling around? Just someone Google the uh, energy of amethyst. The energy of amethyst. One of our sages says that about those 12 stones that the Kohen Gadol wore, he says, he doesn't say he's only discussing it in reference to those stones, but he's saying those stones plus the other stones. He says there's no stones of all these precious stones that does not possess great kohos, great force, power, great power above. There's not one precious stone that doesn't have great power above. That's what our the amethyst also the nervous system, nightmares, insomnia, and the crown chakra. So the only the king, like the king David, like the, the uh, he wants to ask uh, something about the nation. So they will ask the Kohen Gadol and the stone will answer. It's about the nation. Not oh, the, yeah, the, no, it was never private. Yeah. It was only of national importance. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so, um, so the, but I, but back to the pagans and their crystals in their shops and in their services. Um, those crystals aren't answering questions, you know. It's not, it's not that you understand who takes crystals more seriously, the Jews or the pagans. Who takes crystals more seriously? I'm asking. Pagan. No, the Jews take crystals more seriously. Way more serious. What? Only back then, back during the time of the temple. I'm just saying Judaism. Nothing to do with synagogue Judaism. Mm -hmm. Not talking about synagogue. In fact, I'm almost never talking about synagogue Judaism. Even though I go to synagogue, you know, three times a day. But but the um, the yeah. So who takes it more seriously, pagans or the Jews? Crystals. Jews. Jews. Who takes incense more seriously, pagans or Jews? Jews. 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 Okay, music, every ceremony out there in India, in China, in Korea, in Mexico, in Africa, in Guatemala. You think there's music in the ceremonies? You bet there's music in those ceremonies, big time. Our temple had 
a tribe that's job was music. They're called <coughs> Levites. And their job was to develop great expertise on all these different instruments. And the Talmud says that, that there were thousands of them playing at once, meaning thousands of musicians playing. And there were um, thousands of singers in a giant choral, you know, a giant choir. And and the um, and it was so loud. It was so loud that the Talmud says that they that you could hear it under certain wind conditions. It would go all the way down Wadi Kelt, the valley of Kelt, and you could hear the music in Jericho. And if you know where Jericho is geographically, it's just below us, but it's you know. In a car, you could get to Jericho probably in about a half hour, you know, at 100 kilometers per hour. But you could hear it in Jericho. The, that's how loud it was. So it was like a wall of sound. I mean, thousands of musicians. Anyone been to the symphony? Which How much symphony orchestra is? 50? 70? I forget. I think you just check how big a symphony orchestra is. It's a num- there's a number. It's a given number? Yeah, it's a given number. Yeah, there's different size ones, but there's a standard. And... Um, Anyway, but if you've been to a symphony, it didn't lack volume. You know, it's a lot. Why do you think that ten violin players just sound very different than one? You know, and uh, I don't remember how many violinists. You know, one hundred. Huh? One hundred. So, and it's loud in there. I mean, it's just loud without a speaker system. It's loud to go to the symphony, and the. Um, but it was much louder. It was like five times louder than going to a symphony. And, and there was a coin. One of the priests, his job was just to read the faces of the Jews coming up the stairs. There were 15 steps. And on each step, you would say a psalm of David called Shir Hamalos, the songs of ascents, because you were ascending up to the courtyard. And there was a coin who was up there. He was perched up there. His job was to watch everyone's faces. And the reason he was there to watch everyone's faces was to call to the conductor of the orchestra to let them know what to be playing at any given time. Let's say, for example, someone was bringing a sin offering, which is a sheep. He's bringing a sheep, but but by rote, meaning he did a sin by accident. A sheep offering is for an accidental sin. So he's bringing a sheep offering for an accidental sin. And he's... But he keeps doing this all the time, I meaning he's just not, he's not getting his act together. He keeps bringing sheep. He must be a wealthy guy. He can afford to, yeah, every week, there he is again with his sheep. So if the, if the priest notices the one who has the wisdom of the face, what's called, a, uh, in Hebrew, it's called chachmas partsuf. In uh, English, it's called... Um, Emotional intelligence, no. <laughs> it's called... Um, What's the term of a person who's an expert in reading faces there? Mm-hmm. Whatever. No, no, it's a fancy word. It's a fancy word. I always have it. I'm just a little hungover from my daughter's wedding. When you live such a clean existence and then you drink alcohol, you know, and you, if I, I drink so little alcohol that you wouldn't even say I drink. I mean, everyone wants to make a lachaim with the father of the bride, so... I had my shot glass and I was just like, Chaim, Chaim, Chaim. You know, but a hundred of those, you know, came out to about maybe three shots over four hours. And I was, I was just wrecked this morning. Sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't drink alcohol every day just so I can enjoy alcohol when it, meaning don't, not get so destroyed by it the following day. Just says physiognomy. Like, oh, thank you. Oh no, physiognomy is not not it's the not term. The person, though, it's yeah, like the person. It says face reading physiognomy. Yeah. Um, ask uh, what do you call someone who can read physiognomy? Anyway, 
And you know what? Maybe there is no term for it. I think the word I was looking for was that I used to translate Chachmas parts of parts of as someone who could understand someone's physiognomy. Yeah, because it doesn't say. Anything. Yeah, I don't think there's a term like that. Anyway, physiognomy, by the way, is the study of one's face to tell the story of your life. You realize your face tells an amazing story of your life. I mean, some people's faces tell sad stories, <laughs> but but your story, like your story, is all over your face. And I, you know, my seminars, the possibility of seminars, I'm running a, this seminar where everyone has to, everyone has to identify their narrative, the, their story, and it's all over their faces when they walk in, so I already kind of know everyone's story. I don't know any details, I don't know how many siblings I had, I don't know this, but you can tell who was embarrassed, you can tell who, was, who had a trauma and who was abused, and, and who, and by the way, anyone who sets foot in that seminar are the, the cream of the crop of the most courageous people you meet. You understand, like this, everyone knows it's not for the faint of heart. These are a more courageous, you know, they're, 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 they're um, what do you call it, a self, um, self-selecting. But one thing you know for sure is anyone who walks in there has a lot of courage and believes that there's something much greater than what they already have and they're coming to get to the next level of their lives and bump it up and see where their blind spots are and get, get clear and, and move forward powerfully into life. But when they all walk in, I have strong physiognomy, meaning strong ability to read physiognomy. <coughs> so it's, it's really interesting to see it all get uncovered just through their faces in there and finally hear the words attached to the face. And I'm, sometimes I'm surprised, but rarely. Usually it's a story I could have made up. And that's already on the face of the person, which is, which is pretty interesting. Uh, it's a nice thing to have uh, this, the ability to read physiognomy because, you can, like you mentioned, empathy is you can be so much more empathic with people because you, you kind of get it before you get it. Um, but you also have to be humble and not think you get things because you know, it's better just to shut up and let people share themselves. Uh, but let's say you're not going to, they're never going to get a chance to share themselves. So then at least you can be compassionate in unique ways with people who, you know, otherwise it's just not going to be appropriate because they're just sitting on the other side of the table or in a big room of people. Yeah? What about the idea that we, as humans, mirror each other and that can be seen on someone's face? How we mirror each other. Mm-hmm. What's, your, what's an example you're thinking? <clears throat> well, if you... Depending on how you look at someone, that could change their facial expression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like subconsciously. Yeah. Sure. You ever tried turning everyone's faces into smiles? <laughs> Walking on the street? It happened to me in Jaffa Gate. Amazing thing. I went. Through, I, was, I don't go through Jaffa Gate on foot very often, but one time I went by foot. And I... I went through Jaffa Gate, and there was some guy who was like really looking unhappy. And so I just gave him a big smile and said hello. I don't know, some random guy. And I got his face to shine. Just, just one day, give him that and a little victory over his his sourpuss. And and what happened was really funny because I looked back as he kept walking. I looked back, and there was a guy with the same face, like not smiling at all, sees him and he smiled. Smile, smile, and smile. And then I just watched it go for a while. And then I kept walking into the old city, and so I followed this smile. A lot of people around, like today also was crowded. You guys notice how crowded the old city is today? So I just kept watching this smile, sometimes coming over whole tour groups. A lot of these people are tour groups, and they're passing this very smiley tour group, which is like, you pass 50 people smiling, and you're in your own tour group of 50. Yeah, you wind up smiling back, and... And so it just kept going. I got to the hotel right before it arrived because I, I had ways to snake through the old city. And I got to the hotel and we just watched that smile move its way down until people were smiling at each other at the hotel. But I mean, these were like goofy smiles. They're, they're, this goofy smile made its way across the, the Jewish quarter from Jaffa Gate from one person. And we have to understand that our face is is public property. 
your face is public property. If you're not smiling, s- stay home. Yeah. If you're not smiling, s- just don't don't be a stink bug. So the, the Kohen was watching, what was he looking for in the face? The well, I gave one example. Is he was looking for someone who was going to offer an animal by rote, meaning he's like... Yeah, he keeps doing it wrong. He keeps doing the same thing, and he keeps bringing a sheep. This has become almost a loop, like a lifestyle. He's, so what would he do? He would talk to him? He would, no, then he would say, Lam Natsayak to the conductor. Lam Natsayak means to the conductor. Okay. And then he'd give the conductor, like, you know, like a, like a uh, baseball catcher who gives the signs in his mitt to the pitcher, what to play, which, which pitch to pitch, a curveball, a speedball, you know, uh, that kind of thing. He would give a code to the conductor of this gigantic orchestra. And then the gigantic orchestra would then play a song that would leave everybody sputtering with tears. Like, it would cause everyone to go spontaneously convulsing, crying like that. And then this guy would do tshuva on the spot. He would spontaneously combust into sobbing, like, how could I have brought this sacrifice I wrote and so um, I just want to say one more thing is that the, the songs that, that they would sing were written by King David himself so I mean I don't know if they have other songs in the repertoire they may have but from what we know most of the songs were written by King David And the words of the songs were, were written with divine inspiration. Like King David was a channel for a lot of these songs. For example, the song about um, the song about Shabbos. Mizmor Shiri Yom Shabbos. This is the song for Shabbat. Uh, that was written. That was actually was written by Adam on the first Shabbat in history, and it channeled through King David. There was a song that Moses wrote that came through King David. Um, there were songs, many, many different songs King David wrote were channeled down through, through the uh, the original authors of those songs through way before King David. They were all musical. What? They were all musical. Every human being is musical. Yeah. What about people don't have? They, they, they're off, they, they have a, they're tone deaf. Their parents will reckon with that. And the, the, um, what were we talking about? Oh, so I have a question for you. Who takes music more seriously, Jews or pagans? Jews. All the famous musicians, all the famous violinists are Jews. Jews take music more seriously, and I'm not talking about modern Jews or famous violinists. Jews take music more seriously. Today, we don't have any of that going on. We don't have the music. We don't have the incense. It'd be forbidden forbidden to make it anyway right now, but... We don't have the music, we don't have the incense, we don't have the, the breastplate of the Kohen Gadol. We don't have any of that. And hence, we, what we have left is synagogue Judaism and the Jewish home, <coughs> which is great. But for us to walk by pagans and put our nose up and say, oh, that's pagan, we take all the details of their stuff much more seriously than they do as Jews the only difference between us and them as far as service is concerned is that is that they're willing to offer ser- offer uh, offerings to to created things and we're not we will not offer anything to a created think so like they might offer an offering to the west and the east and the north and the south or the up and the down 
you know, they may be willing to offer offerings to to the fire, water, air, earth, the four elements. They may offer offerings to the sun, to the moon, to the stars, the constellations. They may offer offerings to much higher deities that, that are that are angelic beings in the parallel universes, parallel worlds. We won't do any of that. We only offer everything to the source of all that. The pagan makes the means the end. Meaning, when you offer something to the sun, well, you can't live without a sun. But, and we have great gratitude for the sun, but it's not for the sun or gratitude. It's for God who made the sun. But if you don't have an awareness of a relationship with God like that, so then you make your offering to the sun. Now, regarding the four directions, do Jews take the four directions seriously? Yes. Yeah, well, who can give me an example of how we make... We take the directions very seriously. We what? Direction in prayer. Um, yeah, direction in prayer is more always towards the temple. But so, anyone else know something? Okay, we got the four directions in the four corner garment. Sits this. Anyone else? Yeah. Okay, bowing in different directions. Yeah. What? Lulav goes in six directions. Because you do up and down as well. And they're very specific directions. And they're listed how to do those directions. Tell me, do we take the elements seriously? Do we take the four elements seriously? What's an example? You got water, you have mineral as the water libations, you've got the salts, all the meats have to be salted, you have carbon in the smokes, you have the, uh, okay, we, we have the vegetation, you have the animal, fire. the fire, Near tummy. Yeah. And then you have the uh, menorah, yeah, we take the elements seriously. How about this one? What are the four holiest cities in Israel? Hebron represents Earth. Jerusalem represents Fire, Tiberias, Water, and Sfat, Air. We take elements seriously? We have offerings for these elements? No offerings for the elements. No offense to the elements. But they don't need our offerings. Because... Now the question is, well, why did the Jews? Why are the Jews refusing to offer offerings to the elements and to the directions? Well, then why are the Gentiles doing it? Because no, because they do have power. Who gave them power? God gave them power. So the reason why the second commandment of the top ten list of the ten commandments, the reason the second commandment is not to ascribe power, not to offer any reverence to anything other than God is because because they are powerful and you might have thought that that being reverent of them would be would be you know appropriate and the Torah is telling us the first commandment is that there's a God and your reverence is only to the source but what if you weren't at Sinai what if you're just some guy raised in, in some village where they never had a close encounter with God like this? I'm not saying they don't believe in God, but I'm just saying God is like this. I mean, they're not dummies. They realize the world didn't make itself. They know something made this place, and they believe in that, and they call it God. They're not dummies, these people. Idolaters are not dummies. So not they know there's a God. It's just they never had a relationship with God. So they're not trying to find their own means to connect with God. They connect through the creation. Fine, so whether it's right or wrong, but they still try to connect with it. You know what my Rebbe says? He says idolaters are much better than atheists. 
You know why? He says idolaters, they at least, they at least recognize that something else is bigger than them. Do I have to say the rest? Whereas atheists think they're the source of reality. I realized I was not the highest energy because <laughs> after the wedding and uh, sleep totally thrown up. But uh, I hope you gained from being here and uh, blessing everybody. It's local so. Please, uh, everyone, also be blessed to make, have joyous occasions and. Uh, um, Join the media club, yomtovmediaclub.com, please, media club. And, and click share and hit all those bells and whistles to share this with friends. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.